Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 11 of the podcast, the topic is Empowering Workers to Innovate. Our guest is Robin Deschamps, founder of the Future of Manufacturing Community. In this conversation, we talk about why Robin is so deeply interested in manufacturing innovation at such a ripe young age. Also, how do you define manufacturing innovation and why is it relevant now? Why should young people be excited about manufacturing? Why is upskilling so fundamental? What should people know about this new future of manufacturing community? And what's next in the digital factory in the next 20 years? Augmented is a podcast for leaders hosted by futurist Trun Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip.co, the manufacturing app platform, and associated with MFG Works, the manufacturing upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Robin, how are you doing today? Hi, very good. It's sunny here in Berlin and I'm excited to be here. Yes. So Robin, you are an exciting young person who is deep, deeply passionate about manufacturing. And I know that you previously worked at Point Nine Capital, investing yeah. in, in a bunch of early stage manufacturing and digital startups. But you have this very particular interest in tracking the environment more broadly. And you know a lot about the startup environment and you have engaged on industry trends in manufacturing. And I know you're building something New, that's what your LinkedIn profi- profile says. We'll, we'll get into what the new is. That, that's the most exciting thing to have on your LinkedIn profile, by the way. I, I always right. going to have that. <laughs> well, that's easy, right? That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into it. You also have a master's in industrial engineering from uh, Karlsruhe, I, be- I believe. So yeah. um, you seem passionate about manufacturing. Let's start with that. Uh, you're young and you're passionate about manufacturing. And you were, you've been for, for several years. That's not, I mean, it's not rare, but it's also not the first thing to think of. Agree. And I think actually, unfortunately, it's rare, right? At least if I look at my, you know, my friends who went to university with me, very few people actually went into manufacturing. Like most of them, they went into consulting, they went into tech, but somehow manufacturing is not cool anymore. And I think, you know, you and me and, and a few other people, I think we would love to change that. And um, Well, at least you are young. At that, least I'm young, yeah. <laughs> but I think we share the same mission. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's good. Um, well, so w- why this interest then in in manufacturing innovation? Well, in manufacturing overall, and then obviously for you specifically in manufacturing innovation. Mm. Why, why do you have this interest? So I think it starts where I grew up. I grew up in southern Germany, literally in the countryside. You know, a small village with uh, two thousand people, and everybody kind of like works for like a small manufacturing company. Um, and then this was also one of the reasons why I started studying industrial engineering and management to really, you know, understand more actually what's behind that. And the first, to be really honest, the first internships I did at big manufacturing companies, they were really frustrating. So when I entered, you know, these companies and I was going to the shop floor, I was really impressed just by the sheer size, you know, these big machines, you have the robots, like that's really cool stuff. But where I got frustrated was it was really slow moving. <laughs> and um, 
So this was one of the reasons why then I, I tried to see, you know, if there's younger companies I could work for. Um, and this got me very interested in, like, let's say, the, the younger generation of manufacturing companies, right? The startups. And then, yeah, just how it happened, I, uh, I finished my master's and ended up at Point Nine Capital, an early stage venture fund. To Point Nine, they're actually quite industry agnostics. So we invested in everything, B2B SaaS and marketplaces, independent of the industry. But in 2017, and I guess it's also a little bit because I'm native German, I saw a lot of new companies popping up here and there. And then I think I just went into the rabbit hole because I, you know, it, it really, again, it was fascinating to see these companies popping up. I tried to get a better picture of it to understand it better. I first created a Google sheet, you know, just collecting all these names and add a little bit of like uh, what they're doing. And then it became so much after a few weeks where I was like, hmm, maybe I should somehow categorize them. And yeah, I think the result of this was kind of like a landscape. Um, I don't think it's perfect. There's also, also like a lot of names missing, but this landscape from, I think, initially like 90 to 100 startups now grew just organically to, I think, more than 450 companies. Wow, I'm interested in that. So so these are all manufacturing startups in your mind, in, in some broad version of, of manufacturing. And, and, and yeah. how did you... How did you start tracking these? Like, wh- what approach did you uh, did you take? Have you been searching the internet uh, for this, or did you go into startup databases? How did you uh, define it, and how did you find all these? Because mm-hmm. it's a staggering number. Yeah, and I think there's no scientific method behind it, but um, I think I got very passionate about it. I talked to loads of people, and then you know, once I actually were writing about it, people reached out to me. Hey, you know, can I think there's this company? It should be on your map. And then, you know, you, you meet a lot of founders, they refer to other people and so on. I think it just grew organically. And I actually looked into like a few databases, but I think the tracking there is really bad. And so probably that's one of the reasons why this whole map and the whole tracking I did very manually just worked very well, because it's somehow like uh, overlooked, I think, by many of these like tracking sites. Well, not only is manufacturing overlooked, but I'm, I'm guessing that they are miscategorized, right? Many of these firms actually have manufacturing clients because, you know, a lot of uh, SaaS firms also, of course, have manufacturing clients, but it's not tracked that way because it's just not viewed like manufacturing tech is not one of those sexy tech topics that startups are supposed to care about. But of course, that's really largely where a lot of the clients are anyway. Exactly. And that's so unfortunate because I think, you know, if you look at the contribution to the GDP, how much this industry contributes in, in Germany, in Europe, and I think also similarly in the US, right? It's so big. Uh, which sometimes, you know, gets me wondered, like, hey, why, why are there not more younger companies actually going after these big companies? Because they spend a lot of money on, you know, uh, software services. Uh, of course, also can hardware. you unpack some of the categories that you have put these four hundred and fifty uh, some companies into? What are what are the main types of technology or innovation that you you discovered was you know is already happening? Yeah, I think a lot of stuff happened in robotics. Um, there's also, you know, a number of companies that I had to actually put out of the map <laughs> over the last four years. And I think robotics and general hardware is just like super hard. Um, but I think we've seen a rise in like autonomous guided vehicles of robots uh, that, you know, also work in the warehouse that pick and place items, for example. I think there has been like a, a massive trend. Another one that I would call manufacturing as a service are more, you know, like marketplaces, platforms. I think there's symmetry in the US, which is quite big. Uh, there are a few in, in Europe, uh, funny enough or interesting enough, just recently uh, Protolabs actually bought uh, 3D Hubs for I think like 280 million plus, so quite a big number. 
Um, and so I think there was a lot of, we saw a lot of like new companies that tried to, you know, build these platforms, kind of like an Amazon style platform where you can just, you know, order a uh, metal sheet. Uh, and uh, this is, I think, another trend we've seen over the last few years. Tell me a little bit more about what companies fall into that category, if you if you must. So manufacturing as a service, that's that's interesting, and it kind of fit, again it fits a little bit what the venture capital community uh, you know wants to look for. You know, yeah, and I think it's a model that you also probably understand a little bit easier, you know, compared to maybe some very complex software uh, system on the shop floor. <laughs> right. So, what would you say are some of the exciting startups that you did find during this tracking exercise? If you were to just single out, some, you know, a few of them, and we can talk about. Yeah, I think one was Plethora in the US, where they basically tried to build a vertically integrated uh, uh, factory. So, in the end, you know, the idea was you upload your CAD file, and then they have their own machine running, and they just, you know, manufacture uh, the the part uh, you want to uh, get manufactured, and then they ship it to you within like a few days. Um, so I think what's interesting here is, you know, like the software and the full stack factory approach, if you want. Uh, so basically, I mean, they, they rebuild like a, a new kind of like factory from the get go, which I thought was, was really interesting. I think it's very hard to scale because you need to have a lot of um, customers in order to pay your, your running costs of the machines and of the staff. So you, you have to keep utilization very high, which I think is a challenge. And then there's other models like Xometry, like Laser Hub in Germany, like 3D Hubs, uh, which just got acquired by Proto Labs where they work with a network of suppliers. So they, you know, they don't manufacture the parts themselves, but they basically work with a network of suppliers that then ship the manufactured parts directly to the customer. Got it. All right, so robotics and manufacturing as a service. Uh, any other kind of new types of things that you were able to coin by, by looking at all these startups? Any, any new uh, and surprising areas or startups in, in this map? One area that I'm really curious about and really also, uh, yeah, that I think is really, really interesting is what I call like manufacturing app platforms, you know, where I think also like Tulip plays a very significant role. And and why I like this is because in the end, you know, I think a lot of factories in the next decades, they have to grow by increasing productivity. And I think if we can get, give people the tools, you know, people who work on the shop floor, like frontline workers, if we can get them the tools to increase their productivity, and also, you know, to get rid of maybe very boring and repetitive tasks, I think that's something to make the whole manufacturing industry more, more sexy and the job more appealing, right? And so that's a trend I saw. There's a few other companies in the space um, where I was like, hmm, this is really, really interesting. And I think another interesting part here is like more like the no-code, low-code approach. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of like software on a shop floor is like very complex. Not that many people understand it or can program it, but you should, you know, can do it. I think everybody understands Excel. And uh, if you somehow, you know, uh, can copy that logic to build like small applications within the manufacturing shop floor, uh, that's super exciting. Well, no code is, of course, known across the rest of the software industry. Right? It's, it's actually, you know, any software is no code or it has a, it, it's the UI layer of any software in a, in a certain sense, right? It, it's, because, it's why you and I... Uh, can use, like you said, Excel and how we can use any any program because there's mm-hmm. a user interface that doesn't require coding. But uh, in the manufacturing space, what are some of the players and what exactly, what kinds of functionality have you seen emerge from this no-code slash low-code approach? Can you po- be specific in some, some types of operation that previously just w- was the domain of these massive software integrations and that are, are now kind of splitting up into 
really low, low or no code environments? I mean, is it is it only on the shop floor, or or is it also software used sort of in and around the shop floor? Give me a sense. Yeah, one example I could make here. Um, so we invest in a company called Workerbase. They're building this uh, manufacturing connected manufacturing worker platform, and they also developed like a smartwatch specifically for manufacturing workers, which is a bit more robust than like a traditional Apple Watch. And what's interesting, so one of the use cases, for example, if a machine does stop for whatever reason, you know, the person who actually has the knowledge to repair the machine, the maintenance worker, gets directly a notification and then can go to, ma- to the machine, which basically decreases up uh, downtime by a significant uh, percentage. And so I think you know, all this collaboration where, for example, also then worker can talk to each other and can't talk to machines is something that I think is really interesting. Um, in general, you know, collaboration, I think so far happened mostly um, like through pen and paper or just, you know, by talking to each other. If we look into a different segment, I think collaboration within the design space is really interesting. So if you think about, you know, traditional CAD tools, um, and it's so funny because, you know, if we work in tech, I mean, everybody collaborates on a Google sheet, you know, like I can share something with you, we can directly comment into it. But if I want to design uh, a part, it's usually, you know, I'm stuck in my CAT system and it's really hard to collaborate with other engineers. And now, you know, like new players like Shaper 3D, uh, which focus on especially, especially on tablets on the iPad or on Shape, you know, CAT system on the cloud, it gets much, much easier uh, to collaborate on specific designs, which I think is another important trend, maybe outside the shop floor. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. And when... You know, when we think about these new systems that are slightly easier and, you know, they're more collaborative, there still, however, is this upskilling challenge, right? So I guess there's two separate problems I, I wanted to sort of bring up. One is we have covered it a little bit, which is young people aren't necessarily super interested in manufacturing yet. Yes. And it's kind of counterintuitive because you and I have been talking about a lot of very exciting technologies that actually just under another name are kind of the top technologies young people are interested in. And we yeah. haven't even really gone into this, but there's obviously uh, AI and machine learning in, in many that underlying many of these applications. You can't build advanced CAD software and things like that, you know, unless you take advantage of these contemporary techniques of computation. Yes. What kind of prediction would you make, you know, in terms of how young people should approach this sector and how and how they will approach this sector is are we going to see um students shifting more into this sector because it's going to become apparent to everyone that that there are these exciting startups and that uh, the industry itself is transforming or do you think it's going to take much longer and we're still going to have kind of this slug of um yeah this impression that the manufacturing environment is is slower moving I think it has to come also like from manufacturing companies, right? And especially from leaders, from managing directors, you know, from C-level people to to basically also foster this, you know, culture of innovation and to adapt to the, let's say, Generation Y, Generation C style of work, which I think, you know, is a big clash compared to, let's say, the, the classic manufacturing work style. Um, and so I think, you know, it's both probably like top down and bottom up. I think, as you said, right, younger generations, they're really interested in technologies and i think if manufacturing has one advantage there's a lot of data and so far i think not many companies or factories making use of that so i think there's a big opportunity there and i think also um a lot of especially smaller manufacturing companies i had the impression you know the last decades they usually invested in machines 
but not necessarily the people. And I think the mindset have to shift a little bit, you know, that in the next decades, it's going to be so hard to hire people, to retrain them, to develop them or reskill them or upskill them, uh, as you mentioned. And so I think the mindset has to shift more from investing into machines to investing in humans, in the people. Uh, and this shift is something that I think will take a while. Um, I think the good thing is we have some of the leaders who, especially in big of manufacturing companies who already, you know, like are really bought into this mindset shift, but until, you know, like the small manufacturing companies also, I think will adapt this, this will probably take a while. You know, I was, I was reading something last week that was uh, kind of interesting that I hadn't really studied uh, in detail before, but it turns out, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, the school system changed quite dramatically because mm-hmm. of the interest of manufacturing leadership in, in training workers. Arguably, we are now at a similar juncture, right? Mm-hmm. So the whole Prussian style of schooling, the whole German school system, which then you know transformed the world's educational systems too, at least in the younger uh, you know, younger age, but but also actually transformed into university training. What kinds of training and what sort of approach do you think we should take to handle this massive upskilling channel challenge? Is it still institutional schooling that is the answer? You know, making people more aware of manufacturing technologies and uh, and what's happening, you know, on the shop floor earlier on, or is it more on the job training? I mean, is it? What is the educational model for this uh, for this day and age? I think it's a big and complex problem, and I think again, you know, you need all the institutions from I think the government as well, right? But then also like the the traditional education institutions, the companies themselves. I think also more and more people understand that you know it's about lifelong learning, you know, and I won't do the same job for the next thirty years, uh, and that you know this might shift, and so I think you know this. Or in the end, you know, everybody has to come more together and, and try to see how we can solve this problem together. Because I think in Germany, as I, as I mentioned, right, I think, you know, if you think about the automotive sector, I just talked to one company and I think it's no surprise, but they don't need, you know, 20, 30,000 people anymore in the next few years due to electric mobility. So what do you do with them? Right? So I think, you know, it's a, it's also, it yes, it has to come from the, uh, the people themselves, but also like I think the, the bigger companies that employ so many people really have to invest a lot into this. And to give people, you know, uh, a development and career option for the next decades to come. Hmm. So, um, can you enlighten me and uh, the listeners and, and, and viewers on how you became somewhat of an expert in this topic? You, you clearly you had education in the space. You were interested and passionate, and and grew more and more passionate about the space. <laughs> so that much we have covered. And then you dove down into. Uh, well, you had this opportunity at an at a VC firm, and you started diving into startups. But you know more more in detail. How is it that you stay up to date on this, and and what is the approach to learn more and more and, and, and kind of dig deeper into what you call the rabbit hole, which I think is a very interesting rabbit hole. By the way, it's, a, <laughs> it's a worthwhile. You know, some rabbit holes are. Yeah, it's a very know. rare rabbit hole. Not many have seen this before. <laughs> I think, honestly, it sounds simple, but I just talk to hundreds of people. Right? I just reach out to people cold on LinkedIn, on Twitter, to people who I think write interesting stuff. It's just, I think, you now reaching out to people and talking to them. And you will be surprised how many people actually take 30 minutes, uh, especially, you know, I think at the very start where I you know, I didn't know a lot about, I learned a lot from a few like really senior people, but they somehow enjoyed the conversations. They took the time 
And then, you know, this just like grow over time. And to give you one example, I, with Point9, we invested also partially in the US. And so I went to San Francisco and to Boston every now and then. And, you know, when I went to Boston, I just tried to talk to every robotics company uh, that is in Boston. And luckily, a few of them uh, uh, took 30 minutes of their uh, busy day uh, and invited them to their office. And this was awesome. Right? And I'm super grateful for these people. Um, and, and I think that's the way how you learn, right? I think if you have this intrinsic motivation, if you are just curious and ask a lot of questions, then I think you will you will learn a lot. And, you know, I wouldn't say just don't hesitate uh, to reach out to people when you think... Um, they could be interesting. I think what, what probably is interesting or what probably you should do is like not only trying to you know get knowledge out from them, but also you know see how you can be helpful and maybe something you know you can share. So I think when I was in Boston, for example, I think many people often ask me about the you know how is the manufacturing industry in Europe? You know, should we go to Europe sooner or not? You know, how do people think about automation or robotics? And so I think in the end it was all at least I hope so, also like a win-win for for both of us uh, when I talk to people there. Well, this brings me to to my curiosity. Uh, the new new thing that you pointed out on your LinkedIn account. I'm I'm now really curious about this. So, what should people know about your future manufacturing community? What 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 is it? What will it become? Um, what's the response so far? Uh, how can you get involved? I think the what will it become? I think that's the interesting part because I think this is still like you know wide wide open, um, but. To go back to this, so I started this newsletter that I called The Future of Manufacturing three years ago. Uh, it grew organically over time. I had many, many really cool conversations with people who were reading it and who reached out. And I was always like thinking, hey, it's a one-to-one conversation and it's interesting, but why, you know, cannot can, can't it be like end-to-end? You know, the people who are reading it or reaching out to me, they should talk with each other as well right? because they'll learn a lot again. And so I didn't have the time during point nine to really, you know, build a community and try to to really leverage this. Um, but now, since uh, since I left point nine in December, uh, I just took this as an opportunity. Um, and I think, you know, it's B two B, so this will take some time. Uh, you know, it's I think a bit different if you have uh, people working in manufacturing companies; they're not on Slack all the time, for example, right? Compared to many tech workers. And so I think you have to build this community a little bit different compared to communities I built in the past. Um, but it's an interesting learning for me, and I think again the most interesting part for people here is just you know to to share their learnings. You know, for example, hey, that's how we structure a pilot. These are some pitfalls. You know, if you do it, you know maybe you should watch out for this. And I think actually, if you look at all these startups and all these people who are driving innovation in corporates, they would do so much better if they could work more with with each other. But I have the feeling often you know there's a different language they're talking. The expectation management is not really well done. And so, you know, just bringing them more together is something I just feel is part of my mission and of the newsletter. Um, and then, you know, if you think about something more into the future, I think my, my kind of like vision is to help manufacturing companies becoming more productive by giving people the necessary tools and the necessary skills. And how exactly I'm going to do this is still, I think, something I'm, I'm trying to figure out at the moment. Hmm. Um, and I think as, you, as we described, right, it's a very complex problem. You can attack it from many different angles. Um, it's a massive market. And so where I'm at at the moment, I just need to zoom in to one specific persona, to one very specific skill, and then, you know, probably go after different personas. So I'm curious about this. Are you specifically focusing on uh, what we've been talking about, which is, you know, you as a persona is, is, you know, for me, that's also extremely interesting. So you're a young person interested in manufacturing. That gives you a view into this industry that is unique. Um, are you trying to t- 
teach factory leaders about the young people and how to attract talent? Is that, that would be one obvious thing that you could focus on, right? Yes, and that's actually something I would love to do. But I think, you know, it's, it's also not easy as, you know, like a 30-year-old person to talk to somebody who is 50, you know, running the factory for 30 years and tell them, hey, that's how you should do your recruiting uh, in the next uh, years. That's how you should uh, train your people. So, you know, uh, I'm not naive. And I think there, there will be also people who probably think, you know, this doesn't work. And I think that's totally fine, right? As it is often with innovation and new things. Um, but uh, that's one option I, I consider. One thing that I think is super interesting is something that Volkswagen is doing. They have their own university, if you want. Uh, it's called Fakultät 73, very German word in Wolfsburg. And they have a program where they reskill internal people, especially internal people, to become a software developer. And this is a win-win for them because in the end, you know, the market for software developers is empty. And on the other hand, uh, there's a lot of people they don't need anymore due to electromobility. And so, you know, reskilling them to become a software developer is really interesting. However, I know, you know, it's, they only have 100 spots. And, you know, reskilling, let's say, a very old person who is do, like running a machine for 30 years, I think she won't become a software developer the next day. But I think, you know, like more younger people and people who are open to this actually, this could be an interesting uh, way for them. Well, I, that, that's an interesting point. Uh, you know, the people who are of a more elevated age and have been in the industry for a long time, to them, I, I'm guessing, and, and even for me, right, it's it's moving really fast. It moves so, incredibly fast. You even know, for me today. I've been diving into these technologies that are relevant to the shop floor Yes, the industry calls it no code or low code, but there's still there is a learning curve, and 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 even if it's not coding skills, it is interfacing skills. It is learning just even just learning five or ten new software interfaces, and 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 they keep evolving a little bit. And as easy as they may be, you have to kind of keep these skills up to date. You have to kind of learn the ins and outs of so many different systems. This is not necessarily what our parents' generation, for instance, who may be in the workplace still, and at least maybe your, your parents' generation. Yeah. What is your advice to, to them? How should they approach training and how should they deal with this new environment? It would be very easy to say, well, you know, I'm too old for that. I'm not going to get involved with this. This is a mindset. My kids get into this. You know, uh, I'm not going to deal with it. Do people really have that option today in the industry? I mean, is there going to be a generation that doesn't have to deal with these new technologies? This is a super interesting question, right? So my mother is a teacher, uh, funny enough. <laughs> and I mean, she's now 60, right? And she used to do classes over Zoom. And to be very honest, it's not very easy for her. Right? Uh, so now it works. But I think, you know, it's... In the end, I think it's actually our society and we as humans who really have to help these people to, to make the shift to more like digital style of working. Um, I think we I think if there's one thing we should not do is like just let these people go down, you know, and let them figure it out themselves. But I think actually it's our responsibility to help them. Um, and I think this can have many ways, right? I, I don't know. Unfortunately, I think if I would have the solution, I could uh, build a big company right today uh, from today already. <laughs> but I think what's interesting, you know, it doesn't mean that they basically do coding themselves, but, you know, just actually explaining them, you know, what they could do, and, and also I think why it is important, right? I think the why is probably something that people sometimes neglect. You know, it's like, hey, this is something you should do, but actually I think explaining the why and why this kind of like work environment now will shift 
is something that we probably need to do more. And I have one funny anecdote because you you mentioned something around you know like yeah, it can be also like interfaces uh, and software interfaces. So one company and it's a startup. They work with a bunch of smaller factories, like a hundred to five hundred people. And one of the sales guy, he's using Slack internally, you know, from for for their startup. They're like fifty people, and if he's on the go, you know, he writes into Slack to keep his workers updated. And suddenly, when he was visiting these factories. They were like, hey, what's this app you're using there? You seem to be like communicating all the time with people. Like, yeah, yeah, this is something, you know, it's called Slack. We use it internally uh, to communicate, to stay up to date. I tell them what I'm doing. Hey, this is cool. We actually have a problem with our communication internally. And so, you know, a few weeks after, they started using Slack. And it's, you know, it's really like it's a small factory in the middle of nowhere in Germany. No way how I think they would have come across Slack. But just because they saw somebody using it and they saw somebody who gets value out of it. They got inspired and started using it the next day, kind of. Well, and enthusiasm think, is contagious, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes probably it's, it's also the, the inspiration, you know, just showing people actually what's possible and how easy it is. It's something, you know, taking the complex out of this complex world, make it very easy and explain them why it works and what's the value in it. I think this is something, and it's still, I think, very high level, but it's something I think where probably this kind of learning needs to go. Well, I'm not going to advise you on your business, but it would seem to me that mentorship from the young, uh, you know, initiate or from the initiated to the non-initiated would be a, a very, very important package here because you can, you can do one-to-many learning all, all you want, right? And there's so much available of this one-to-many approach. But, but like you pointed out, if you're physically there, they have seen it, they see on your productivity, which let's, let's get to productivity in a second. Yes. Um, it's more powerful when it's a one-to-one situation. So that's why I was saying the upskilling challenge is, is really a challenge. Because if it had just been to put a few courses online and, and you know, educate a billion workers, that would be easy, right? Because yes. we could just point to one course and say, that's the course. Yeah, yeah. And then you'd say, okay, yeah, it's 10 units. It'll take us a few weeks, but uh, that's it. Now, yeah, and I think you make an interesting point because I think recently I met a few really super strong, really cool, uh, like per people who were like in the, you know, between I think 25 and 30, and most of them were women, you know, who are super passionate about manufacturing, who really want to drive this in- industry forward, but they always felt left a little bit alone in their own company. Because I think, as we all know, right, I think the ratio of female to male in this industry is unfortunately very bad. Um, and just, you know, already like bringing them together was so valuable because for suddenly, you know, they got to know like three, four, five more role models who are in a similar situation, who are usually in a room full of men, you know, who have to then, you know, talk to them, discuss it. And, and you know, it's it's hard, I think, right? And just, you know, seeing other people, how they do it and maybe where they struggle and, and also, you know, sharing very openly, actually, uh, is something that I think people are really passionate about and, and, and learn a lot from. So let's talk about productivity for for uh, a bit. You have written uh, about it, you know, and uh, of course it's interesting uh, from a VC context. You're clearly interested in, you know, uh, what are technologies that are, are making companies more productive. But what what have you found in your uh, studies of productivity, both when it comes to the shop floor generally and and also specifically to industrial companies? Mm-hmm. So one thing I found was it's very hard to measure, <laughs> yeah. uh, which, which makes it, I think, very, very challenging to, to really understand, you know, what's productivity. I think, again, one of the problems on the shop floor is you, there's, you, you cannot track everything compared to, you know, for example, like if you work at a software or a tech company, which makes it just hard to measure. 
But I think one finding was definitely that um, a lot of companies, they, they tried to increase productivity over the last few years and also have been successful to do so. And I think what was interesting uh, that there was also like a BCG study that actually uh, found out that um, only through like optimizing costs by, for example, uh, going abroad for manufacturing right, and outsourcing, is something which will diminish now over time because the, um, the cost le- uh, level in China, for example, is also increasing, which in the end, you know, is again a result that the only way you can grow is by increasing productivity. Uh, and I think that's something where I was like, okay, this, I mean, it makes sense theoretically, but, you know, just finding a few numbers that point that out uh, and, and really, un- um, I think, make it clear it's a long-term trend was something that I found was really interesting. Hmm. Um, so... My, my last question is a little unfair because I'm a futurist and as a futurist, you're supposed to know things about the future, which of course no one does. So it's a tricky job, but uh, there's a lot of cheating going on in the futurist industry. One of them is to ask other people. So here, here's my question for you. When you are nearing your retirement, which will be some years from now, I mean, quite a few years from now, maybe hopefully, maybe 40, maybe 50, who knows, who knows, but let's call it 50 years from now. Let's just be generous. What kinds of things will have happened in this industry and what will be your worries in terms of staying up to date and how are you going to, what's your strategy now for not becoming obsolete 50 years from now? So I think in 50 years, what we'll have managed is to empower more people in the manufacturing industry who have, I think, more of a say of how their work routine looks like, you know, what kind of tasks they want to do, and to also give them, I think, a longer career option. I think that's something I'm really positive about. I think it's something it's hard to bring into these industries, but we have seen in other industries it can be successful. There are some examples already today where some manufacturing companies try to operate on like an empowerment model. And so I'm very hopeful, and I think in general I'm a positive person, that I think this will be something we will manage to do. But you're making a good point with, you know, staying up to date even for me, to be honest, right? I think if you think about like social media, it's it's so hard how fast it is evolving, right? With like, I think WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, but now TikTok. Uh, and I think there's so many new social apps out there now with Clubhouse and so on in, in the last like few months already that it's super hard to, to stay up to date. And I think bridging these two worlds, you know, people now who just uh, grow up digitally and then people like me uh, who maybe grew up, grew up half digitally I think there will be still like a big clash. Maybe maybe not as dramatic as it seems to be today, but still I think given if it, it will involve like this, uh, like, it, like it does so far in the last uh, years, then I think it will be so hard because all the cycles will just move faster. You know, everything will move faster. Production, like new customers, distribution and so on. I mean, like manufacturing companies, they've done marketing and sales pretty similar in the last years. But now think about the next 10 to 20 years. I don't know if there will be like a, real conference anymore, right? Maybe you, you will use VR headsets to showcase your tools and the buyer will be like a 30-year-old who grew up digitally and she won't go to a physical conference anymore and travel, right? And so how can you sell to this person? Like, this is super difficult, I think. And you know, like then that's why I think, you know, having creativity, taking time to learn is something that we really need to focus on. And I think you can only learn if you try things out, if you, you know, take your time and if you invest in people. 
Well, it's fascinating to discuss these things. And it's one of those topics where there's always a lot more to discuss. And I think, you know, whether we are close to understanding the next 50 years or not, the next few years only will will also bring drastic change. So, I, I mean, the, the thinking in the 50 years is, I guess, just more of a way to prepare us for the next few years. That's kind of how I see it. And thank you so much for for starting that process. And it, it would seem to me super interesting to to see how your future manufacturing community evolves. So let's uh, let's stay in touch and see if we can collaborate on that. Yes, that would be awesome. Thank you very much. This was uh, really cool. You have just listened to episode 11 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim. The topic was empowering workers to innovate. Our guest was Robin Deschamps, founder of the Future of Manufacturing Community. In this conversation, we talk about why Robin is so deeply interested in manufacturing innovation at such a ripe young age. Also, how do you define manufacturing innovation and why is it relevant now? Why should young people be excited about manufacturing? Why is upskilling so fundamental? What should people know about his new future of manufacturing community? How to scale upskilling? And what's next in the digital factory in the next 20 years? My takeaway is that Robin Deschamps represents the future of manufacturing. He is young, he is deeply engaged in innovation, and he tracks startups, talks to the whole community, and wants to improve the ecosystem, and is passionate about upskilling. Robin is an i4.0 native, one of the many we will follow on this podcast. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player, and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode two, How to Train Augmented Workers, or episode three, Reimagine Training. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast.